Uh, we will be finishing Philippians this morning, and uh, Paul in verse 14, he has this big word, it's kind of a moment that seems to be important and pointing to something that we don't want to miss. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my troubles. And so anytime you see that word yet, it's, it's pointing to something that was said before, it's, 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 it's a clarifier. Paul's wanting to make sure that there's no misunderstanding right here. If I was to say, um, here's the way I think this should be done, this is over here, yet whatever I'm saying after that is bringing clarity so that there's not any kind of a misunderstanding. And that's what Paul is doing this morning. And honestly, this final section of uh, scripture in, that, that we're considering in Philippians this morning is, is awkwardly humorous. I don't know if you, if you join me in enjoying that awkward humor, sort of uncomfortable, a little bit cringy, but also funny. But we're doing that together this morning uh, here at the end of the book of Philippians. Um, it's humorous. So let's dig into it together. Remember that the letter to the Philippian church was likely being read aloud in like a house church setting. It was likely being read aloud to a group of very real people who had gathered a financial gift, a very real gift, to be delivered to Paul. So they're in that moment of waiting to see the response, right? Like when you give a gift to someone and, and you wait to see if they like it, and that, that's how this works. That's how generosity often works. And so they've sent this gift, and now they've received this letter back from Paul. And I just want you all to, to really get into this with me. Imagine what it would be like to gather a financial gift to give to someone in hopes of it being a real blessing to their ministry, and then you receive a letter that says, I don't need your money. Awkward, right? <laughs> they haven't heard from him since they gave the gifts that they gave, which were apparently significant, especially for the small size of the church, and they hear, I don't need your money. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I am not troubled by my troubles. I'm okay with my troubles. I don't need anything. I don't have needs. Awkward. The room was probably feeling a bit awkward like you guys are right now. Like, that's so, that's so great that Paul's so content with all of the things and really doesn't need anything from, from anyone. I wonder, I wonder if he got our gift. And it's almost as though Paul, when he was writing this letter, he, he sees that he received a gift, and he's being very emphatic about, I've learned to be brought high, I've learned to be brought low, I have no needs, I'm absolutely content. And he's like, yet, it was kind of you to share in my troubles. It's like he perceives that that's what's going to happen in his letter. And so this is kind of a big yet, where I'm sure that the Philippian church was like, oh, thank goodness, I was kind of feeling stupid for being generous. And so what Paul is doing here is, is he's clarifying um, this moment. But it, it did kind of have... It was humorous this week as I was looking at it and thinking about it because I, I really, I bet Paul was a hard guy to buy a gift for, right? You, ever, you have those people in your life where like comes time for their birthday or Christmas and you're like, oh, not again, I can never win, I have no idea what to get this person. I bet Paul was a hard guy to buy a gift for, so I wanted to really dig into that this week and get some doctrinal and theological insight onto what gift would please the Apostle Paul, so I did what everybody else would do, and I text messaged the, uh, the, the leadership of the church, and I just said, hey, guys, very important doctrinal question. What would be a good birthday gift for Paul? And they did not disappoint. Of course, Kai responded immediately, as you one might expect, and he said, I would get Paul quill, ink, 
and paper, and the quill would say, thus saith the Lord, inscribed on it. It's like, wow, that was fast and thoughtful and maybe a little too serious for this application, right? And then David walked and said, I would get Paul a Birkenstocks gift card. Wait for it. Y'all may not know this, but that's actually the only footwear they could wear back in biblical times were the Birkenstock sandals. They were very popular. Then Kai responded by saying, some tweezers. Okay, it's Kai. Wait for the punchline. And he said, to remove the thorn from his side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's like a pastor joke and a dad joke all in one. It's awesome. And then Lance sent a link, uh, an Amazon link, to a lock-picking kit. So Paul's in jail, so he did a lock-picking kit. And then also a link to the Rome travel guide, so that when he broke out of jail, he would be able to see all the wonderful sights that Rome has to offer. I don't know why this one made me laugh the most. David Watkins said, <laughs> a John MacArthur study Bible. <laughs> and he even said he had inscribed his name in gold on it, Paul, just in the bottom. <laughs> a John MacArthur study Bible. Nick said he would, uh, he, would, he would get the Apostle Paul, Michael W. Smith's Friends Are Friends Forever devotional, which you can hear it in your head right now. That was actually a very popular song during this time in biblical history, Friends Are Friends Forever. And then finally, Kai responded and said, he would simply get the Apostle Paul an empty box with a note that says, well, you said you didn't need anything, so, and that's it. So, as we have a little fun at Paul's expense this morning, I want to make sure that we understand that Paul is not being insincere. When you look at this, it it could seem like If we see it wrongly, we would see it as Paul being insincere, as if he's like, I don't need anything, and then he remembers a gift, and he's like, oh, bless your hearts, bless your souls. You know, that's what we say when we're being insincere, bless their soul, right? That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is, in fact, being emphatically sincere, and here's why. Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to think that his contentment minimizes the importance of their generosity. Let me say that again. Paul does not want the Philippian church, to think that his contentment, his ability to be brother, his need of nothing, he does not want that to minimize the importance of the church's generosity. Or to say it another way, contentment increases generosity. That's our first point of the morning. Contentment increases generosity. Now, that might sound counterintuitive, so go with me on this. You might be thinking, well, if we want people to be content with what they have and, and what they ha- who they are in Jesus then why would we be generous because we're doing more and we want them to be content? It'd be like with your children. If you're like, I want them to be content with the toys they have, so I'm going to not be as generous with the toys I continue to give to them, right? It seems counterintuitive as if maybe generosity gets in the way of contentment because we're blessing people and we want them to be happy with what they have. Do you all understand this sort of weird dynamic? This is what Paul is addressing, at least a little bit in this front part. He actually says, it was kind of you. He says, yet it was kind of you. And the original language is, it was, y'all, you did, you did well. When you guys stopped and you gathered that and you sent that and your generosity, you did well. He's saying, good job. It was kind of you. And I think what we're seeing here is this reality of when we're worried about our provision and we're worried about what comes next and we're worried maybe about like what we will wear, what we will eat, we're worried about the amount in our savings, when we're worried about that, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for generosity. But removing unhealthy worry for ourselves 
creates more room for healthy concern for others. Removing unhealthy worry for ourselves creates more room for very healthy concern for other people. If you have fallen into believing the lie that you sustain yourself, this is hard. The Lord sustains his people. The Lord provides for his people. All of us have that number in our bank account that we're comfortable with. If it goes below that number, we're, we're tense and we're unsure. Everyone's number is different. But the reality here is that removing unhealthy worry for yourself creates more room for healthy concern for other people, more opportunities for generosity. I think kind of what Paul's doing here is he's calling the church to sort of battle their excuses. Uh, we can all have excuses for why we don't give in certain ways or why we don't serve in certain ways or why we're not willing to be inconvenienced in certain ways. We all have our excuses. And so I was thinking about some of my excuses this week. And when I think about working in like the nursery, I have six kids, right? Well, first of all, I have five kids. I don't know why I have six kids. Yeah, five. Um, so the Bronsons have six. Maybe I made eye contact with y'all, got my numbers mixed up. It happens. Anyway, I have five kids, hopefully. And, and so um, I could use that as an excuse, right? I, I have enough kids where I, I lose count, apparently. Um, and I can use that as an excuse. Or the reality for my five kids is they're 16 down to six, and so none of them are in diapers anymore, Right? Yeah, that's applaudable. Yeah, I don't have to change any more diapers. And so I could think in my terms of like working in the nursery, it's like, like uh, no, I've served my time. I'm not going back. That's prison language, right? That's prison language. Like I've served my time and I'm not going back. That we, like you might think that if you, if you have kids that don't have diapers and you think of the spit up and all that stuff, and you're like, uh-uh, I've served my time. Or maybe you're an empty nester. You're like, man, I, I, I don't need to work in the children's ministry. I've served my time. I'm not going back. Perhaps we should guard against using prison language as an excuse for working in the children's ministry, right? We have our excuses on any number of different things. And I think Paul is saying, hey, c- consider your excuses. Really, really battle against whatever excuse you, you would naturally give that would get in the way of serving, blessing other people, um, and even be willing to be inconvenienced. Because we can, we can fall off of the cliff of overworking and overserving. But you can also fall off of the cliff of self-preservation. And there, there's, there's ditches on both sides of the road. And so it's, it's worthwhile with what Paul is saying here to take a minute and say, okay, what, what are our excuses and can we battle them? So contentment, in fact, increases the room for generosity. But Paul, on the flip side of the same coin, he's saying, I'm not seeking generosity. It's a tricky little thing here. He's saying, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that uh, you, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when this gospel message of Jesus began going forward, um, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. You guys were the only ones. He's like, that is amazing. Even in Thessalonica, um, when you sent me help for my needs once again, just you. That's amazing. And then verse 17, not that I seek the gift. So there's... Paul's being careful. He's like, I've, I've been brought low, I'm brought high, I can be content in whatever situation, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. You guys were generous on these two occasions, I'll never forget it, but I'm not seeking the gift. You see what he's doing here? He's being very careful with his words. He's not being flippant or insincere 
He's not seeking their generosity. What I think we're seeing here is that Paul's being emphatic about since the beginning of the gospel, even since the beginning of you know, seeing spiritual gifts go forward and the power of the Holy Spirit, um, that was something that could be quickly monetized. You know, Simon, the magician, you know, oh, how much, how much to buy that? I want, if I can do that, then I can get people to follow me. And it, 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 sometimes it's about money. Sometimes it's about esteem. Sometimes it's about having a bigger following. And he said even at the beginning of the book of Philippians that, you know, even while he's in jail, there are those who are preaching the gospel um, not in truth but in, in sort of pretense. They're preaching the gospel to get a greater following. They're preaching the gospel to kind of kick Paul while he's down. And Paul's like, I don't even care. As long as the gospel is going forward, that's fine. But those people exist. Today, it shows up in the form of people who would preach the gospel so that they could build bigger barns and have fleets of buses and jets and fancy jewelry and things like that, sort of the health and wealth thing. And Paul's essentially saying, I want you all to always be on guard of anybody who would take advantage of the generosity of God's people. That's what Paul's saying. Be on guard against anybody who would take advantage of the generosity. There are people who maybe are more naive than others. There are people who are hardened by the the people who take advantage of others. There are some who are big-hearted and open-handed, and Paul's saying, it's not right to be in ministry for money. This isn't just a J-O-B. In fact, Paul has a side hustle. He's got his own small business where he, he does things so that his needs never get in the way of the gospel in case there are some who, who can't bring any provision. And he's saying, no one should ever take advantage of the generosity of God's people. So he isn't seeking their generosity, emphatically. He wants you to say, I'm not doing this so that someone will finally recognize that I could, I could use a paycheck. That's not what Paul's doing. He wants to be super clear about that. So that I think the question is, well, what is he seeking? What is Paul seeking? We find it in the, the next part of the verse. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Generosity increases fruit to our credit. Is anyone scratching their head going, what even does that mean? Because it's a tricky phrase. I mean, I, what if I just closed it there? Hey, go be generous. It increases fruit to your credit. What credit? What account? What does the fruit look like? These are all things that we have to answer. We only deposit that which has value. Roll with me on this. When we go make deposits, we deposit things that have value, generally monetary value, right? Like if I was to go to my bank and say, hey guys, good to see you again, I'm here to make a deposit, and they say, okay, what are you going to deposit? And I say, a bag of Skittles. There are some red ones, some orange ones, some yellow and green ones, and even some purple ones. I'm going to deposit the bag of Skittles. They may look at me and be like, I'm sorry, sir, we don't accept Skittles as deposits. And if I asked why, they would say, because it doesn't have a monetary value that can be assigned to it. This is, this is dumb. What are you doing? We deposit things that have value, particularly monetary value, in, in all the cases that we talk about accounts. There's a different kind of currency and a different kind of account when it comes to the Christian life. And what Paul is doing here is he is urging them to consider what they value most. Is it things? Is it accumulating more stuff? Or is it being generous with everything because of what it says about Jesus? 
Paul is saying, what do you value? Because we're talking about a different kind of currency and a different kind of account. We've heard about laying up treasures in heaven. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break into steal. And I've always struggled with that verse. Like through a big chunk of my life, I was like, I don't understand laying up treasure in heaven. And here's why. Y'all go with me on this. I didn't understand it because it's like lay up treasure in heaven. When we get to heaven, I, if someone has a big, beautiful mansion and I'm in a shack, I don't care. Right? I think that's kind of the point. Like you're storing up treasure in heaven. What does that even mean? Like if someone has a big mansion, I have a shack... Jesus has separated my sin from me. That's not who I am anymore. I won't even have the ability to be covetous or jealous in heaven. So it's like storing up treasure in heaven. What does it matter if there's some treasure in heaven because I, I'm just, I want to be there with Jesus. It doesn't matter. The thinking was, what does it matter because I was actually thinking in terms of monetary value on storing up treasure in heaven. And what I'm saying is there's this entire different economy with our Lord where monetary value is, is used as a means to another end and the main currency that we want is the kind of currency that just makes much of Jesus. That's what you're putting into that eternal account. So there's this sense in which when you go to heaven, every single person has uh, this account. Your soul is eternal. You have this account and the account is full of all of the ways in which you were able to live and show in your life that Jesus is mighty to save, that Jesus is trustworthy, that you can trust Jesus' promises and everybody has this big account in heaven, that you're, you're, you're storing up treasure in heaven, and the treasure is the glory of Jesus. That's more valuable than stuff, and it affects the way that we treat stuff because we can move and live in a way in which we use the stuff to point to the importance of Jesus. That's storing up treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven is things that can never be taken away, that will, that will go on for forever and ever, that make much of the goodness of our God and the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know how to help everybody wrap your head around that. I just want to encourage you to spend some time, Labor Day weekend, thinking about this account that we're all having, that we're all contributing to through those acts of generosity. There's something about being generous that increases fruit to our accounts, and I just want you all to spend some time thinking about it. Wrap your head around. Maybe that's the content of our new worship songs in heaven. We just, we're drawn from, oh, look what he did here. Look what he did in this country. Look what he did in this neighborhood. Look what he did in this family. There, there's, there will be no lack there will never be a dwindling account of the glory of God. It will always be full and overflowing. And we contribute to that now in the way that we live. We want God's glory to be put on display rather than how much stuff we can accumulate on earth. Laying up treasure in heaven. John Piper has a quote that uh, he's one of my favorite uh, pastors and modern day theologians, spiritual offspring of uh, some amazing other scholars that he spent time under. He says, if laying up treasures in heaven is the opposite of laying up treasures on earth, then probably laying up treasures in heaven will be not laying up treasures on earth. Now, let's just stop there. Isn't that just brilliant? Like, so what does it mean to lay up treasures on, in heaven? It means you're not laying up treasures on earth, probably. I like that he puts probably in there. It's like he's so brilliant. It's like, thank you for the probably, John. That helps us who were, who were wondering. If laying up treasures in heaven is the opposite of laying up treasures on earth, then probably laying up treasures in heaven will, not, will be not laying up treasures on earth, but giving them away in ways that magnify the worth of Jesus. 
That's how you make that contribution of that fruit in the account that you have. You give of your time, you give of your resources, you give of things to people in strategic ways that magnify the worth of Jesus. Like, do you see, like, that's so much better than just trying to answer the question, do I have enough? Has anyone ever had that experience where maybe you made more than you thought, but somehow it wasn't still, still wasn't enough? You buy a bigger house, but somehow it's still full of junk and there's never enough storage. You buy a bigger car and there's still room for Cheez-Its and Cheerios all over the floor and it can never be clean and there's always stuff in there and Capri Sun packets and the little wrappers, little straw wrappers that they just, they just take like savages and throw on the ground. Like, do y'all ever experience that, that reality where like, you know, it's never enough room, enough space, enough money. That's why scripture warns against just building bigger barns because if the goal is to always build bigger barns, you're never gonna have big enough barns. There's a better way of living a way that magnifies the worth of Jesus and just how we, how we deal with the, the massive blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon all of us. Paul's urging the church to answer just a question, what do you value? How does your approach to money and possessions reflect to the world what you believe about the infinite worth of Jesus? And Paul doesn't just stop there. I mean, that's pretty emphatic, right? This account, just picturing this account in heaven, just full of all of the amazing things that our Lord has done. And we're just, we're act, we're just putting into that account so for all of eternity we can just pull from it and it never runs out as we worship God for eternity. That's a pretty big statement. But then he says this. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He's going back to the gifts that they sent. And he says, a fragrant offering. This is a huge phrase. A fragrant offering, sacrifice, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul calls their generosity a fragrant offering. That phrase is used only one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.2 and it says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul is far from minimizing the importance of generosity. The phrase he uses to express what their generosity was, a fragrant offering, is only used also of Jesus in his death. A fragrant offering. So in a way that Jesus denied himself, took up his cross, was obedient to the point of death, which Paul has already communicated here in in explaining how we are to be humble, he's also using it in explaining how we are to be generous. It is fitting that you would pour yourselves out for others. It is fitting that you would deny yourself so as to give to other people. Uh, Maybe it's your time, maybe it's your money, whatever it might be, you can give to other people in such a way as to magnify the worth of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, it is a fragrant offering. Do not make light of generosity. And I think there's a side note here. I don't know if it's the main point, but he, he says, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I think it's worth noting, you can please God I guarantee there are people in this room right now that struggle with the thought that they could please God. As if it's never enough. As if your, your, your efforts are never beautiful. As if maybe God is looking at whatever you've offered, whatever you've done, however you're using your time, and, 
and maybe it, it, it's just never not, it's not quite good enough. And I, I want you all to know that the truth here is, is he says that their, their generosity was pleasing to God. Some of us, um, it's, it's very easy for us to quickly, quickly remember um, that um, we were conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin. It's easy for us to go over to Isaiah that says, you know, our, our, our good deeds are, are as filthy rags before the Lord. And that's true. Before Jesus, your reality right now as you're sitting here is not that all your efforts are filthy rags before the Lord because Jesus rescues and redeems and cleanses and brings salvation and brings healing. And so there was this beautiful phrase I, I ran by this week, and it was one of those deals. It was, it was like in a podcast. It wasn't even the main point, and this guy just used this phrase. He's like, yeah, and in our, you know, we have mixed motives. You know, we want to give, and we want to be kind, and, and there's some other things. And he's like, but, you know, all those, uh, all those imperfections, you know, they're, they're, they're canceled by the blood of Jesus. And I was like, whoa. It wasn't even his main point, but it's utterly brilliant. In Christ, we have canceled imperfections. So whatever efforts you're putting forward, where you want to deposit into that account, where you want to be generous, you want to be kind, you want to be loving, you want to serve others, there's always going to be mixed motives. There's always going to be sin mixed in there. I really want to help someone, but maybe quietly I kind of want someone to know that I help them. Or I really want to be kind and serve in this way because it's good to serve, but maybe I'm really just like, but I hope, I hope maybe I gain a better standing with some people. There's these mixed motives. And in Jesus, he cancels the imperfections. So when God looks at what you bring, he sees a fragrant offering. He sees a beautiful sacrifice. If you struggle with the futility of life and feeling like whatever you do isn't worth it, it is worth it because Jesus made it worth it. It is good to put forth effort. It is good to serve. It is good to give. And it is pleasing unto our Lord. You can please God. And what matters eternally is what pleases God, which is why that account is so important which ultimately means that generosity is an act of worship. Worship is not just us coming here with our own ideas and saying things out loud in the form of song. Worship is responding to who God has revealed himself to be, and he is a generous God. So generosity is an act of worship. Our generosity is driven by the generosity of God. Look what it says in verse 19. Paul is encouraging them, and he's also making sure he's really clear on some points. And then he says in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God supplies every one of our needs, or we might call that generosity. Our God is incredibly generous. It says that the nature of his generosity is it's according to his riches. So it is it's unending. You cannot plumb the depths of what he might be able to give. The, the riches of his generosity are unending. They're in glory. They're infinite. And they are, they are huge in their beauty. And then um, the nature of his generosity is in Christ Jesus. It's unshakable. It's final. It is certain. So there's never a time for all of eternity where God's generosity runs out toward us. And that fuels our worship. So worship, a part of our worship is generosity because we're responding to the generosity of God. And I want you all to know that God's generosity is extravagant. Extravagant. That's not a word we throw around a whole lot. We don't go to 
Brahms and get a burger and be like, this is extravagant. It's a, it's a special word. And God's generosity is extravagant. I think a lot of us, it's easy to think, well, yeah, he's generous with his salvation. You know, none of us were deserving. Like it's even more of a thing when, when someone is generous to someone who's undeserving, which was all of us and our sin because that sin separates us from God and from each other and he rescues us. And so clearly God is generous with his salvation. But I want us to just consider as a church, he's also generous in a lot of other ways. He's generous with his comfort. Scripture says when he's, when he's writing his letter to the, to the Corinthian church, he says, comfort others with the comfort with which you were comforted so that they might be comforted as well. When you see repeated words in Scripture, we're trying to make a point. And I think that Paul is saying something about comfort and the importance of comfort. And so when, what he's saying is that God has comforted those people so that they can turn and comfort others so that these other people are comforted. And so God is generous with his comfort and it gives us this clarity that we're not a means, we're like, we're, it doesn't terminate on us. All the blessings from God, we are blessed generously by God so that we can bless others generously. That's the system. That's the design. That's the beauty. That contributes to this account in eternity when we do that because God gets the glory. God gets the glory. This person, God gets the glory and it continues. We're, we're vessels we're conduits for blessing. We don't just say, God, give me generosity and, and blessing so that I can just accumulate more stuff and be just filled and my God can be my belly and all these things. No, we are a conduit to bless others. God is extremely generous with his comfort. If anyone ever says, God doesn't care about your comfort, he cares about your holiness, well, like, tell him, like, did y'all see that verse that said comfort 15 times in it? God is generous with comfort. God is generous with his energy. Anyone have little kids? Praise Jesus that God is generous with his energy because they have a lot more energy than I have. Scripture says that we toil and we struggle with all of his energy that he works within us powerfully. Scripture says the toil and struggle, the things that we put forward, the efforts that we put forward, even in generosity, It's with his energy that he powerfully works within us. So rather than just saying, hey, here's a bunch of people who are eating terribly and and going out to eat too much and they're tired and they're they're not doing things to try to not be tired, but I'm going to take their little bit of energy and I'm going to fluff it up. No, he's saying it's just not enough. Whether they're they're extremely healthy, extremely unhealthy, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my energy, put it in them, and then powerfully work it within them. Y'all, God is generous with his energy. We, We could overlook it but we probably shouldn't. God is generous with his wisdom. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Do you know what happens when you don't have wisdom? You just ask for it. And you know what he does? He just gives it to you. Like, why don't we do this every single day? Maybe some of you do. If you lack wisdom, which you do, if you're sitting there going, I don't think I lack wisdom. You you lack wisdom on that front. Um, but, but God gives us wisdom generously to all without reproach. You, you have not because you ask not. He is generous with his comfort. He is generous with his energy. He's generous with his wisdom. Our God is generous with spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you have ever been on the receiving end of that from anybody, that's the generosity of God. The fruit he's producing through the power of the Spirit in the lives of other people so that you might be on the receiving end of gentleness or kindness, or genuine love. 
Spiritual gifts, every time we gather, everyone sitting here has spiritual gifts. Did you know that? Every member is a minister, and every member has spiritual gifts, and they're meant to be used for the blessing of other people. They don't terminate on you. You're a conduit. So anytime someone uses a spiritual gift, whatever it is, whether it's administration, kindness, gift giving, teaching, preaching, whatever it might be, and you're blessed by that, that's the generosity of God because he's so generous with his spiritual gifts. Our God is generous with his listening. You ever thought about that? When he introduces himself, what does he say? He's quick to hear. You ever tried to talk to someone who's not very good at listening? It's really infuriating. Like you kind of deal with it when it's your kiddos, because kiddos maybe aren't, aren't like great at listening, but when it's like another adult, you're like, dude, I'm going to strangle you if you don't focus right here. And sometimes I'm that guy, because I get scatterbrained. But like um, God, is, God is generous with his listening. What, what, what do we know of him? He is quick to hear. He says, if you lack anything, ask me. Let your request be made known to me. Our God is generous with his listening. Our God is generous with his patience. He's not only quick to hear, but he's slow to speak and slow to anger. He's, he's, he's generous with his patience. Our God is generous towards us, and he's generous with his love. Church, you have never been loved with any kind of love from God except love that is perfect. God's love can never be improved upon in any way at any time. There was never a day where you were loved more by God and then another day where you were loved less by God. The love you've received from God is nothing but perfection that cannot be improved upon. Our God is generous. When we, when we know of his love, everyone knows John 3, 16, that, that for God so loved the world, he, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So he is, he is generous with his love and he is generous with his son. Our God is generous and so generosity must be an act of worship in which we respond to God's generosity towards us. I think probably a good gift for Paul would be for us to give others, give to others in sacrificial and strategic ways that make much of Jesus. Those kinds of experiences. In his closing, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Generosity is a form of hospitable recognition. Why is that important? Hospitable recognition, that greet someone, that's a hospitable recognizing. We have greeters at the door, not just so you know where to go, although that's important, but so that people say, I see you. We're glad you're here, genuinely. A hospitable recognition. So many people in our world are hurting and they feel unseen. They feel unseen. They feel, they feel like, like, like no one appreciates them. They feel invisible. The church is designed by God to be a place where you are seen. It happens through generosity. It happens through hospitable recognition, a place where people greet you and they recognize your presence. If you're unsure of your value, in Christ you have great value, and Jesus gets glory for that eternally, and we as a church are to recognize one another and to be hospitable. Hospitality from a biblical standpoint is having people in your home that wouldn't normally belong there. So it's a normal thing for the church to have people over. If you're like, oh, my house is a mess. Listen, can we just murder the idea that our houses have to look like no one lives there? Like, as if that's the case, you won't ever have anyone over. But hospitable recognition. I see you, and I want to make you lunch. It, it seems very simple, 
but it's profoundly wonderful in how it blesses people and how you're depositing into that eternal account because God's getting glory. You're using your time and your resources in ways that make much of Jesus. He says in every one of his letters, Paul says, grace to you, and then he closes it with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And our hope is that as we've spent time in Philippians this summer, the summer of joy, our hope is that as we started it, we wanted, like Paul said, grace to be with you. And as we've worked through the letter, I think we've received grace on so many fronts. As we considered what it means to strain forward, what it means to imitate the humility of Christ, what it means to press on, what it means to be content, what it means to be generous. I'm hoping that we have been blessed as he says grace to you and now we continue with it. Church, this morning, we're not graduating from the book of Philippians, okay? We're going to keep walking in it. We're going to keep taking it into heart and we're going to... In, in closing, we're, we're going to be generous in every way that we can so that we can look at every word and every action and see that we make much of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for our time here this morning, and we pray that you would um, really overwhelm our hearts and our minds in the coming hours and days, perhaps, of helping us to understand this heavenly account that we can make deposits into far more worthwhile deposits than things with just simple monetary value. Lord, in, in praying for that, I think what we're praying for with, as a church this morning is that you would give us a continual awareness of your presence and also an eternal perspective. Help everything that we do and say, the ways we serve, the ways we give, help them to be tempered by this eternal reality of your glory, glory going forth as we worship you eternally. Lord, we love you and praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.